Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H-Brighton.org. Hey, friends, we've been, uh, we're preaching the books of the Bible here. We really believe that the Bible is God's word. He's inspired and the ideas there are God's ideas. And they're what we need, all people need at all times and generations. I'm taking a break from the book of John and doing this whole series. And getting ready for Christmas. We jump to Isaiah 9, where we uh, do this a very famous passage. And um, good preaching, the best kind of preaching, friends, it goes to those passages and it tries to work through the ideas, the flow of thought that is there. That's what we believe God has inspired. That is what is divine, it's what we need, and what's most applicable for all of us. This morning, I'm going to do something just a touch different, where instead of going through the entire flow of thought, it's just one proposition, one idea, and we're going to just look at it and jump up to kind of the wider Christian worldview, the meta-narrative of the Bible, compare it a little bit to contrary worldviews and other worldviews. And it's this one simple idea that he shall be called mighty God. So I'm going to take for granted several things that, that Isaiah writing then in chapter nine, he is talking about things going on at that time, 400 and something BC, 500 BC, I don't remember exactly, for Jesus, talking about something going on then, but also he is, consciously or not, he is talking about something in the future, the Messiah who will come and the different descriptions about him, the role he will play and why he's coming. And one of those titles that will be applied to Jesus is Mighty God. So that's what we'll be doing this morning. And as I was preparing for this, this topic, and uh, thinking about the time of year we're in, Christmas, uh, a potential analogy or metaphor came to mind, and I wanted to, you know, no analogy is perfect, but I wanted to make sure it was, you know, okay. So it had to do with, with a steak, and I ended up, we have two grill masters here at least that I know of. One is Nick, our worship leader. And one is Yoon over here, Josh Yoon. So I pinged them. I said, hey, guys, I'm thinking about an analogy for this upcoming sermon. When you think of the nicest possible steak, what comes to mind? There's one of the most responsive I've ever got from Josh. He actually replied to my message. 60-day dry-aged ribeye. Some kind of filet that's followed by French I can't pronounce. That, uh, that's really a good one, he said. No, wait, I got it. Dry-aged A5 Wagyu tomahawk ribeye. And we got, a, we got an image of this. He sent me one. Okay. <clears throat> Apparently, that's a premium steak. 11 pounds, $1,400. Um, so I asked them, I said, how, how do you decide, uh, you know, on a premium steak like this, what kind of sauce you, you add to it, because I, 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 this is a new world for me. I don't know this world. Nick is a sauce guru, um, and I didn't know you could, could do such a thing. And here's the reply. He said, sometimes a great steak just needs salt and pepper. The steak should be able to shine on its own. I knew I'd come to the right place when I got that answer. It's perfect. Imagine someone going into a restaurant, they order that, it would, I don't know how it would be if you got one cut, they order that slice of steak, and they say, how do you want that prepared? And they say, I want it well done. And then it's served to them. 
And they take a bottle of ketchup, and they just slather ketchup on top of it. I think that's what we do with Christmas. A little salt, it's fine. It's good. Family, friends, some traditions. It can accentuate. But do we throw so much on there that we don't let it shine on its own? Okay. Either one, you don't appreciate such a cut of meat, and maybe it's not that good of cut of meat. Okay. Sorry for the meat analogies. I try to think about things. I know everyone has uh, different preferences and stuff like that, and uh, even some ideals that are legitimate. But, you know, I don't play with my son enough to spend a lot of time trying to go, how do I make a vegan-sensitive uh, analogy there? So I, it's, a, it's real. I try. That goes for lots of analogies and points I make, right? So be patient with me. Please. My goal today, though, friends, is to do this. Really, all sermons. Instead of a steak and say, do you appreciate this for what it is? Look at it. Look how glorious it is. Is to do that with Jesus. Do you see the value? Do you see the glory? Can you taste it? And obviously, ultimately, that's the Holy Spirit's work in us to change our taste buds. And that is how I've prayed for you and me this week. And I do most weeks. My hope is to do that, to put a slide. Now we don't do pictures of Jesus. We do words. That's what we do. So we try to describe these ideas to you that such that we have a delicious meal you can enjoy. So that's what we're doing today. So what we're doing today, we're going to talk about Jesus as mighty God. Um, we're going to look at one, God, two, Jesus is God. And three, Jesus became man. We'll spend most of our time on the the first one or two, I I think, in this. Firstly, God. To try to, I mean, what what can you say? I didn't even know how to put a sentence there, right? I'm going to talk about God. What I've decided to do is try to just, I'm going to give you a whole history of Western philosophy. No, I'm not going to do that. But I will tell you some, like, why is it philosophy exists? People wanted to understand. People wanted to know what is the case? What is true? What is reality? What makes something real at all? What does it mean to exist? Why is there something rather than nothing? Is everything the same or is everything different? Is everything static or is everything constantly moving? Where is their intelligibility? They wanted to ground lives, ground thinking. And so I'm just, I just picked, I'm going to jump between like as far back as I can go in the West, all right? You have these ideas. Firstly, pre-Socratic philosophers talked a lot about the logos, this idea of like, well, we need something that unifies. There seems to be all these differences, okay? But we need something that brings coherence, brings unity, makes things interpretable. They talked, that was a Greek word, the the logos. It is this unifying principle. We need it. And then Plato comes along and he says, no, there's this thing, there's the good. 
There have to be these forms, these ideas. How is it that we talk about, you know, that chair and that chair? They're not the same, but yet there's something else. There's something else that they share in common that makes it intelligible where we can have groups and categories. And ultimately you have this idea, it's impersonal, but it's, it's, it's his place of God, the good, capital G. Okay. In his allegory of the cave, he says, the good is the universal cause of all that is right and beautiful. It is the source of visible light and the master of the same. And in the intelligible world, it is the master of truth and reason. That's the grounds. That's the place you can stand and do thinking. That's, the, that's what gives you a reference point. And then many have heard of Aristotle's prime mover, right? This idea of, I need, a, I need some first cause. I got you, you ask, well, what does that? What explains this? Well, that does. What explains that? And when you get back to the end of, in his case, it's particularly causation, where is the ground? How is this not an infinite regress? And the irrationality. So those are just people trying to figure out what, how is there any coherence? Why is there something rather than nothing? Does it matter how you live or is it all just preference? So people kept thinking, they kept thinking. So I'm jumping down to the other end of, of time to maybe modern day, about 1800s. And I'm just picking on a couple. Along comes Immanuel Kant. And he is a very complicated thinker, but he, what he's most famous for is what's called the Copernican revolution of the mind. Okay. So Copernicus, right? He's the one who postulated like, oh yeah, the earth is not, the, the sun's not rotating around the earth. The earth is rotating around the sun, right? This Copernican movement of what is in the center. Well, all philosophy up to this point, for the most part, has said, I assume that there's, there is reality. There is something out there. There is a universe. And so a, a legitimate question would be, do I exist? Is there any me? And Kant flipped it immediately. He said, no, actually, it's, the most obvious thing is that there is a me. Is there a universe? Is there reality out there, or am I all that is? Okay, you hear the importance of that shift of now the center is my mind. And it doesn't take long as we proceed through modernism, the definition of truth very quickly shifts. I hope to get to preach a sermon later in John, and we'll spend probably the whole time on this, something like this, guys. The definition of truth is hard. What is truth? Truth, the, the common sense definition, like truth is that which corresponds to reality. It's a def, that's the common sense definition. It's what most people have held to. But as people realized, well, maybe, maybe not. I don't, where is this, what if there's no grounding? What if I, what if I am the center? How do I know there's anything else out there? Definition of truth transformed to that which works. Pragmatism. It's hard to, it's hard to even begin to explain all the ramifications of this in our society. Think of all the things that people are just okay saying in a microphone. All the politicians, leaders are commenting on things going on today. My words and what I pick, what's true, what corresponds to reality, what does that even mean? What is real? All that matters is what works. 
What gets me elected? That is what I can say and not say. Okay, etc. This is, uh, I think, the the culmination. Oh, one way it was expressed best of this, of this, you know what, we tried to find, we had the good, we had the prime mover, the logos, you know what, I don't really see, we don't really see that, we haven't got consensus that there is any grounding. So now we're switching it and there is no grounding, there's just us living. And then (laughs) Frederick Nietzsche has this famous parable, the parable of the madman. I'm sure many of you have read it, heard it, if not, I'm not going to read you the whole thing. It is exceptional. And he's telling this parable about, and it's a, more of a commentary on what's going to happen to civilization. Okay, I'm more focused on this idea of, is there anything real? And it's about this, this civilization who largely doesn't believe in God anymore. There is no grounding. There is no reference place. And everything is subjective. And people don't realize the ramifications of that, but except for one person, the madman. The madman is coming in to make this point. Okay. So let me read this for you. Two paragraphs from it. Have you not heard of that madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours, ran to the marketplace and cried incessantly, I seek God, I seek God. As many of those who did not believe in God were standing around just then, he provoked much laughter. Has he got lost, asked one? Did he lose his way like a child, asked another? Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage, immigrated? Thus they yelled and laughed. The madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with their eyes. Whither is God, he cried, I will tell you. We have killed him, you and I. All of us are his murderers. But how did we do this? How could we drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What were we doing when we unchained this earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now? Whither are we moving? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually backward, sideward, forward in all directions? Is there still any up or down? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is not night continually closing in on us? Do we not need to light lanterns in the morning? Do we hear nothing as yet of the noise of the grave diggers who are burying God? Do we smell, do we smell nothing yet of the d- divine decomposition? God's too decompose. God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. That was before this definition of truth was so explicitly reworded. He was predicting it. He was predicting this demise of lack of reality. Now postmodernism takes over. And you say, what's going to happen? What is this shadow of a shadow that we now have lived on? You just turn on TikTok and just noise. Do I, I see in culture this disbelief that there is anything real. There is just words. There's just my team, my tribe looking not stupid looking impressive, people liking me. Is there anything real? Or is it all just a question of what's the best flavor of ice cream? Two plus two, does it really equal anything? Or is it just an idea that's used to control people or whatever else? 
we say in postmodernism. Let's go to the next slides. I think we're going to skip it. Oh, I want to. Keep going. Next one. Next one. You're missing out. No. Not if there is a God. Not if there is a God in the way that the Abrahamic faiths have conceived him. And particularly, of course, I would say Christianity. And I'm going to just give you a handful of ways. This idea of God, what is the significance of God? What does God mean when we use that word? Who has tried to define God? I'm not about to exactly, but I will describe to you significant roles he plays. Firstly, he is the creator. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It is shocking to me how we do not see that that sentence alone separates the Abrahamic faith from every other belief system that has ever been. All religions are basically the same. All religions are basically the same, except for none of them. We just get through the first sentence and we as most of us Westerners who've been influenced by a culture that's it's just totally, you know, Judeo-Christian, right? We think if there's a God, if it's not atheism, the only alternative is there's a creator and there's the creation. It's like no one has believed that. That is not what they believe. Every Egyptian God, every uh, Roman, Greek God, they were created things. There are origin stories to all of them. <laughs> Every belief system, uh, atheism until 80 years ago, pantheism, the universe has always been there. It's always been there. There is no creation. So saying just alone, there is a God who has always existed, and then there is a creation that did not always exist, and then it came into being by them, you are down to the Abrahamic faith and no other. That's it. God is the creator. He is the one with the rights. He is the one who stands alone. To what will you compare him? The Bible asks that question several times. To what God asks, to whom will you compare me? There is nothing. He is alone. He is the creator. Secondly, God is the absolute reference. I don't know a better thing to say than absolute reference. And where is that most clear in that famous story of Exodus, where Moses says, who will I tell the Israelites that who sent me? What is the name of the God who is sending me? He says, you tell them I am sent you. And so most of you know this, when you see in the Old Testament, the capital L-O-R-D, Lord, that is a translation of Yahweh. This phrase, I am. That is the covenant, most important, significant name of God. He has other descriptors as well, other names, but this is the foundational one. This is the most absolute bedrock. I am, how will you describe him? He is God. Will you, will you talk about how big he is? With respect to what? What is the external reference point to which you will compare him? I still hear this uh, question all the time. Euthyphro's dilemma, right? When we talk about morality, how is God an explanation for how their objective morals and values? And people say, and one of the rebuttals that goes back to Plato again, uh, he says, well, the, Euthyphro postulates that you can't use God as an explanation because either one, 
you know, that you're saying that God arbitrarily decides what is right and wrong. So he can just say, you know, murder is good. He could have done that. That makes values not really make sense to be objective. And if he's not doing that, then there must be some external third source reference point by which it determines whether God's dictates are good or bad. Plato talks about the good, right? For him, God, the creator, was separate from the good. And it's just a fundamental mistake. No, that is that you're confusing. Your good is closer to the idea of God, Plato. He is in itself inherently. God, God is love. He is love. It's his being, his ontology. He is goodness itself. Okay, so whether you're talking about morals, uh, truth, value, beauty, the implications are enormous. So I'll, I'll go this again, contrast is the mother of clarity here. Two examples, at least. One is uh, one of the most important things C.S. Lewis ever wrote was a book called The Abolition of Man. And in it, it's hard to tell a story because he's like quoting and they're quoting people, quoting people, right? So it's hard to share it. But he's talking about these, this book on his shelf where it's talking about a poet and the poet overhears someone say that waterfall is sublime. That waterfall is sublime. And these atheistic thinkers, detached from any absolute reference point thinkers, their commentary on that sentence is, when the person said that waterfall sublime, they thought they were making a comment about something above and outside themselves. They thought they were making a comment about the waterfall, but instead they were doing nothing but making a comment about a state of their own mind. There is no reference point. There is no such thing as beauty. David Hume puts it like this. Where are we in these notes? David Hume says, all, all sentiment is right. All of it. Because sentiment has a reference to nothing beyond itself. It's always right. Whether a man is conscious of it is not. Beauty is no quality in things themselves. It exists merely in the mind which contemplates them. And each mind perceives a different beauty. And C.S. Lewis says, that is the abolition of man. That there is nothing beautiful. There is nothing really good. There is only preferences. I got to study in England for a year and I got to go to this little conference, 50 people, and it was, uh, the name of the conference was Christian Theists Talk to, Christian Ethicists Talk to Peter Singer. Uh, Peter Singer is, probably the most famous atheistic ethicist alive today. He is a utilitarian. On what else would you base it? And this, for days, all these smart St. Andrews and Cambridge and Princeton academics are waxing and waning, and the Q&A sessions were so interesting. And the very last day, Nigel Bigger, the sage of Christian ethics, gets to leave Peter Singer with a few questions. And the last question was, I just want to hear it. Naive, I wish I could do the accent. He said, I know this is a naive question, but I just want to hear what you would say. What would the Jewish prisoner say to the Nazi guard why you shouldn't kill me? 
So Peter Singer gives just a passing comment to the first two questions. And this third question, he camps on for a while. He said, that's not the question you meant to ask me because you know I'm a preference utilitarian. He's, he's switched since now. He's a hedonistic utilitarian now. But he said, you, you know what I'm going to say to that. I'm going to say the preference utility of living and all that comes with that, having a family, working a job, meaningful, whatever, all the things you get out of life, that's a greater utility than your preference utility of not wanting a certain people group around. So that's my answer. Now, what you meant to ask me was, on what basis do you determine that the preference utility of living, having a family, working a job, is greater than someone's preference utility to not have a certain people group around? And this is where utilitarianism gets fuzzy. It's a direct quote. It's a direct quote. And all you're thinking, this guy has the microphone in his hand more than anybody I know on this subject. He's done some great work for animal rights and stuff like that, okay? But at the end of the day, we're standing in midair. There's nothing underneath. There is no foundation. God says, I am. I am. There is a reference point. There is a foundation. And when we say something is good, we might be right. It's goodness is real. Goodness exists. Truth exists. If you're a theist, And the alternative is fuzziness, fuzziness. Here's one last quote. Uh, This is from Cornelius Van Til. He's talking about the idea of justifying morality, truth, apart from the idea of the Christian God. He says, suppose, so I'm trying to, he says, account for accounting. How do you account for accounting? Suppose we think of a man made of water in an infinity extended and bottomless ocean of water. Desiring to get out of water, he makes a ladder of water, sets this ladder upon the water and against the water, and then attempts to climb out of the water. That is our option. When you're out in space, in nothingness, what is up or down? What is north, south, east, west? There is only left and right. With God, he is, the, he is the horizon of the universe. And Jesus is God. Very quickly. All the points on that one. Trying to paint, this is what God is. God is the creator. He is the absolute, absolute reference and he is the absolute person. Within that, I didn't spend enough time on that because, you know, what can you do? There's so many good things here. Jesus is God. People often obsess over using this word theos. Where does the Bible say he's God? And use that word, theos. And there are places. There are some of them right there. Thomas says to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus accepts that worship, etc. Okay, but that's not, to me, those aren't the really important things. Go to the next one for me. The Bible says that Jesus, the mighty God, he's the creator. This is so Simple. This is Christianity 101. And how many people who grew up in church have a hard time saying this? 
Jesus created everything that exists and apart from him was not anything made that has been made. That's John 1. Here in Hebrews, long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That absolute reference, that creator is Jesus. Another place, skip Colossians. Let's go to this one because, no, go back, go back. It's too late. Try to repeat after me, finish, finish the blank. In the beginning, I think it worked. I think I heard both. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, okay? I cannot believe John was not put, this is the first book of the New Testament. I think it is an amazing oversight. The, God said, let there be light into the darkness. The word through whom everything is made, he is the light of men shining in the darkness. Jesus is the creator. And he is that absolute reference. Next, this is the most, friends, I cannot, uh, yes, the word, he is the Logos. This is a genius choice by John. For the Jews, the Logos is the creative power of God. God said, God said, and it was. God said it was, that's how he created, was by speaking. Jesus is the speech of God. For the Greek, we already talked about it. Jesus is the Logos. He is the unifying principle of thought, he is the referent. Next, D, if you don't know this verse, know it, Christians. Where does the Bible claim that Jesus is God? He says to the Pharisees questioning him, he says, before Abraham was, I am. Yahweh, Jesus takes upon himself the divine covenant name. And are we right in this interpretation? Yeah, they go to stone him for it. That's blasphemy, Jesus, unless it's true. Jesus is God. He is the I am. He is the horizon. Oh, man. Lastly, third point of the day, friends. Jesus became man. Who said we were taking a pause on John, huh? The Logos became human and came to us. John 1, 14 is Christmas. Transcendence becomes imminence. Plato's good that shines light into a cave and casts shadows on a wall. And he's got this, somehow people get out of their shackles and go out and they get to stand in the light and get their eyes to adjust. No, no, the light comes into the cave and reveals itself to you gently, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Oh my goodness, what a great song. Great choice, Nick, All right? He comes in and he unshackles you. I, this, one, this is just incomprehensible, guys. Imagine, I had to, I had to Google this because I'm not good at, here's another 
analogy. Sorry if sports isn't your thing. Imagine that Jason Tatum joined us this morning for worship. You'd hardly, that he, for you to know, he's a basketball player on the Celtics. Okay. Most of you would not be hearing anything I was saying. Oh, he's here. What? Why would he be here? Wow, this is so special. I wonder if I can talk to him. Why would he condescend to spend time with us? We would be so impressed, so feel so flattered. The creator, Yahweh, he came to be with us. He came to spend time with us. Friends, this is blasphemy to Muslims. They hate this idea. You, God used the bathroom? How demeaning. He is so holy, so pure. How dare you? It's a decent, decent point. Yes, God is that humble. He, that mighty one, is willing to take on that kind of weakness to be near. Friends, this... Um, I was, uh, Claire and I, I can't remember if we were dating still or married, but I, I, I grew up kind of going to church, but not enough to like know anything about Christian culture. You hear all these songs that people sing, and I, I don't know any of them, uh, like the youth songs and stuff. And there's a song that apparently is very cheesy and cliche. Most of you will have known it, but I had not heard it. And I came to her, I'd been just like bawling. <laughs> it was so amazing. And she's laughing. She's got a story about why it's especially cheesy for her. I'm just going to sing it for you. No, I'm not going to sing it. I'm going to read you some of the lines in it. Mary, did you know that your baby boy will give sight to a blind man? Mary, did you know that your baby boy will calm the storm with his hand? Did you know that your baby boy has walked where angels trod? And when you kiss your little baby, you kiss the face of God. Mary, did you know that your baby boy is Lord of all creation? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day rule the nations? Did you know that your baby boy is heaven's perfect lamb? That sleeping child you're holding is the great I am. How can it be, friends? How can it be that God outside the universe comes to be amongst the weakest things in the universe and simultaneously Jesus is upholding the universe by the word of his power and he is a fetus in the womb of a woman that is the Christian God that is Christmas And it had to be this way, friends. He didn't just come as a magic trick either. The incarnation is a glory unto itself and he had a purpose. He had to be both God and man. Only God, only God can take on the punishment, the wrath of God for millions and millions of people and not disintegrate. He has the value to pay the debt that we all need. And yet God cannot die. The wages of sin is death. God can't die. 
He took on humanity to be able to die. And we can go on and on about the fittingness of his earned righteousness and the substitutionary fittingness of him. Guys, he came with a purpose. Christmas is about the perfect God, the absolute reference, the one who brings meaning to life, who is beauty in itself, who is goodness itself, taking on humanity, living this life. Nietzsche has another great quote. He's talking about a theodicy is like a justification for why God will allow evil and suffering in this world. That's a philosophical term, a theodicy. And he says, there's only one, there's only one good theodicy, paganism. The pagans had a great theodicy. He said, because the gods live the life of man. I don't know how he missed Christianity. The only worthwhile theodicy that the God was willing to step in all the hardship in your life, the trials, the suffering, you have experienced nothing, nothing that God hasn't said, I will take it on too. I will, I will learn what it's like. I will experience it directly as you do. Not as a superhero getting shot with bullets. Bullets don't affect me. No, he takes on the weakness and the bullets pierce the same way they pierce you. That is Christmas, friends. That's our God. So let's just, oh man, we'll just have to end it. Guys, sink your teeth in that transcendence became human. That's the gift wrapped up for you in human form, God. God, come, let's, pr- let's pray that, if you, what, what's the big, if someone put that steak, that slice of that steak in front of you, like, do we appreciate it? Do we have the taste buds? That's a supernatural work of God for us to taste it like we ought to. So please, if that's, you're going, no, I don't, none of this, well, you don't have to be impressed or, or like what I said, but if the idea that God became man so that he could bring you to God is boring, if that doesn't taste good and you're tempted to slap that in ketchup, do not let this season pass without some good work on your knees. God, what could I be missing? Is this the gap? All the, the longing and the lack of substance in my life and the things I'm pursuing, is it because I'm just missing what's been offered to me in God becoming man? That's my challenge to you this, this Christmas season is to enjoy this God. And if that seems foreign to you, to enjoying God like you would enjoy a good meal, then please talk to us. We'd love to talk to you ourselves. We can do that. And you yourself can talk to God. He invites you for that. That's what Christmas is about. So let's pray together. 